from Turtle Island to Palestine. Occupation is a crime. Free, free Palestine! You're listening to Radio Free Palestine. Welcome everyone, you are listening to Under the Olive Tree. I am your host, Sausan Kadura. So in 2018, a Zionist and pro-apartheid group in Canada, Bnebreth, accused the Canadian Union of Postal Workers of supporting terrorism and anti-Semitism. Now the union fired back against the group with a lawsuit accusing the Zionist group of defamation. The group tried to stop the lawsuit by asking the court to dismiss it under Ontario's anti-slap legislation, but their attempt failed. And the Ontario High Court ruled recently that the defamation lawsuit can go ahead against Bnebreth. Now, this is not the only defamation lawsuit against this uh, Bnebreth, this group. Uh, the group might be in trouble because a second defamation lawsuit brought against it a couple of years ago, I believe, was also allowed recently to go ahead by the Ontario High Court. This time, this uh, defamation lawsuit was brought by human rights lawyer and activist Dimitri Lascaris. And uh, this lawsuit was brought because of a smearing campaign Nebris started or launched against him as well. So will these Canadian Zionist groups ever be held accountable for their redundant but very harmful smearing campaigns against various organizations and people who dare speak up for the human rights of Palestinians? So to discuss this and more, I have with me on the phone Dimitri Lascaris. As I mentioned, he's a human rights lawyer, activist and journalist. So thank you, Dimitri, for joining me again on the show. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure. So I guess let's start with the first lawsuit. I'm assuming you're following this lawsuit, and it's the one that involves the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, as I mentioned. So um, what do you know about this? So how did it all start? What did the union do to anger pro-apartheid groups like Nebra so much that they made it its own, its newest target? Well, you know, groups like Nebra have been hostile to uh, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers for uh, much longer than the events underlying uh, this lawsuit. And really it stems from the fact that uh, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers has been uh, in the forefront in the organized labor movement in this country and defending Palestinian rights. And that includes endorsing the BDS movement, which, you know, from the perspective of groups like B'nai B'rith is, uh, is an unpardonable sin, even though it's nothing but, you know, a desire to ensure Israel respects Palestinian human rights through the use of peaceful economic sanctions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's fair to say that because of its support for Palestinian rights, the Cup W, you know, this courageous union, has had a target on its back for a long time. This is not the first time it's been attacked uh, by groups like B'nai B'rith and, you know, um, others who defend uh, the cause of Israel in Canada. Uh, what precipitated this most recent attack is that the Canadian Union of Postal Workers a few years ago 
developed a sort of working relationship uh, with the Palestinian Postal Workers Union. And apparently, uh, according to the, 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 the judgment and the documents I've read as an observer, I'm not involved in litigation, um, somebody affiliated with uh, the Palestinian Postal Workers Union posted something on his Facebook page, which B'nai B'rith claims amounts to an endorsement of terrorism or a an expression of support for a terrorist. Putting aside the question of whether or not, and because I think that claim is debatable based on what I know about the case, that this person who's affiliated with the Palestinian Union did anything which constitutes an endorsement of a terrorist. But putting aside that fact, the fact that uh, you know that some person who's affiliated with the Palestinian Union put something like that on his Facebook page doesn't in any way, shape, or form reflect upon the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. They don't control what individual members uh, of the Palestinian Postal Workers put on their Facebook pages. But, you know, B'nai B'rith seized upon this and claimed that the, because of this, that the Canadian Union of Postal Workers had aligned itself uh, with uh, Palestinian terrorism. I mean, it was really a quite remarkable claim, a stretch, to put it mildly, and um, you know, the court, uh, I think, appreciated very quickly when they saw the evidence of what actually had happened, that making a claim that uh, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers supports terrorism based on that set of facts is an extremely questionable thing to do. And um, what emerges from the decision of the court, by the way, it wasn't the uh, high court, it was the, uh, it was the trial level court, it was the Ontario Superior Court of Justice that rendered this decision, mm -hmm. a single judge. Um, what emerges from the reasons of that judge is that B'nai B'rith uh, you know, did virtually no investigation at all into what had really happened here and didn't even take into account the fact that the Canadian Union of Postal Workers has consistently condemned violence and uh, has never done anything which could rationally be argued to, uh, to constitute an expression of support for terrorism. And so the judge, I think, you know, was quite pointed in his reasons. He wasn't uh, called upon to make a final determination on the merits as to whether or not the defamation action of the, the union was justified. But he did make comments in dismissing this anti-slap motion, which suggests that B'nai B'rith is in real trouble. Uh, and by the way, uh, there are three, there are three uh, defamation actions, not two, that are pending <laughs> on, uh, against B'nai B'rith. The, two, there's, the other one you mentioned is, of course, my own defamation action. But I'm acting for um, Canadian Friends of Sabeel, a charitable organization based in Montreal uh, that is also suing B'nai B'rith for defamation in small claims court in Ontario uh, based on similar, uh, you know, a similar sort of flawed reasoning and set of allegations. Uh, so, you know, the organization now is confronting three defamation actions. And, you know, I'm hoping that one day uh, they will learn to actually be responsible. I mean, it's possible to advocate for the state of Israel without smearing people unjustly. It's entirely possible, and there's no reason why they can't do it uh, without, uh, you know, trying to destroy people's reputations. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that neighbors tried to dismiss the lawsuit under the anti-slap legislation. So can you explain to us what is this legislation? What does it mean and how a defamation lawsuit can be dismissed under it? Well, the first thing to bear in mind is that in Ontario, the normal rule in litigation is that uh, if you win uh, a piece of litigation, the other side has to pay you costs. Uh, but the costs that the other side has to pay you only amount to a small 
uh, a relatively small part of the overall cost that you have to pay out of your own pocket. So it's usually somewhere in the range of like 20 to 40 percent. And they, we call those partial indemnity costs. So that's the normal rule. What this legislation does is it says if the, ma- if the subject, subject matter of the allegedly defamatory statement is a matter of public interest, then the plaintiff has to show before there's any, you know, discovery in the case, before there's any, uh, you know, depositions and document production, the plaintiff has to show that the case has real merit. Um, and if the plaintiff doesn't show that, then the defendant uh, gets full indemnity costs. They get 100% of their legal fees, not just you know 20 to 40%. So it creates uh, a situation where if you're dealing with a matter of public interest, you better be sure that you have a strong case. Otherwise, uh, you know you could end up having your case dismissed very early and paying a lot of money uh, to the other side in addition to your own legal fees. I personally support this legislation. I think it's a good idea, but it was intended... To, def- to, to protect, uh, uh, you know, individuals, activists, small charitable organizations that are sued by wealthy people and large corporations who are trying to silence them. Mm-hmm. That's what it was intended to do. It wasn't intended to protect a, an advocacy group uh, that is smearing people's reputations in order to uh, advance the cause of a state that is a, an egregious human rights violator. And, uh, and, and, you know, in situations where the people who are being attacked oftentimes are just individuals. They're not, you know, they're not um, large corporations. They're not the people who are being criticized. So I, I think that really B'nai B'rith's repeated attempts to use this legislation are a misuse of the legislation. Uh, but I, I think the courts are starting to get wise to that. But, uh, you know, I think the, 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 the rationale underlying this, this law, the anti-slap law, is a good rationale. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, the accusation that Zabnebrith brings are very over-the-top inflammatory. Uh, the Canadian Jewish News quoted Zabnebrith uh, saying, for example, this is one of the many things they said about the union, that they were questioning if Jewish members of the union should even pay the, the, the union fee because, according to them, this would be used to support a vo- foreign organization that wants to see them murdered, unquote. So it's pretty inflammatory, as you mentioned with no evidence yep. whatsoever. And we're talking about how this is smearing the Canadian Union, the the reputation of this Canadian Union. But I was also curious, before going back to the case here in Canada, because this is continuous smearing of Palestinian organizations and Palestinian unions, and which is not surprising. But I was kind of curious, is there any legal recourse for a Palestinian Union, let's say, to file a lawsuit against a Canadian group like Nebreth for defamation uh, or other things? Like, is that a possible also avenue for them or they just have to? Uh, ab- mm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They could they could file a case. I mean, I don't know what the laws of Palestine are. I don't know if they could pursue a, a claim in, uh, in you know, occupied territory or in Israel. That may be fraught with challenges. But here, could they pursue a claim against uh, Nebreth for defamation? Absolutely, they could. Uh, you know, but the union would have to uh, uh, hire a lawyer and would have to pay significant fees, and they would be confronted by uh, almost certainly another anti-slap suit. So, um, you know, while that is a, a course of action that's available to them, they might decide that they don't want to, you know, make that kind of an investment. I'm not sure that, that the Palestinian Post- Postal Workers Union is even aware of the fact that they could pursue a defamation action. Uh, but in my opinion, if, if uh, you know, they should give serious consideration to that mm-hmm. uh, if they're being unjustly uh, accused. Mm-hmm. The only way at the end of the day that, you know, Palestinian, 
Palestinian groups and those who advocate for the rights of Palestinians can put a stop to this. It's, I mean, they're not just attacking the reputation, as you pointed out. They, they, the groups like B'nai B'rith consistently go after the funding sources of organizations that um, advocate for Palestinian rights. And so, for example, in that other case that I mentioned where I'm acting for Canadian Friends of Sabeel, they uh, went to the Canada Revenue Agency and, and demanded that uh, the agency withdraw the charitable status of Canadian Friends of Sabeel. Mm-hmm. So they're, they use this two-pronged uh, you know, uh, strategy where they go after the reputation of the organization and they go after the funding of the, of the organization. Frankly, that has worked in the past. It's been successful in destroying organizations that advocate for Palestinian rights. The only way to put a stop to this is to vindicate your rights in a court of law. Mm-hmm. So what's next in this uh, lawsuit? Before I ask you about the other two uh... Now the lawsuit was allowed to go ahead. What is next? Can Nebreth appeal it? Well, I, in, a, in a case of in a, in a motion of that nature, uh, they would have to get permission, in my opinion. They would have to get permission of a judge to appeal. Um, I don't think it's likely that they would get permission, but they might try. Uh, if they do get permission, then the matter will go uh, to a higher court, uh, you know, we'll, which will look at the evidence and uh, reconsider it. But I, I, as I say, I think they would have very little chance of success on the appeal. And what's more likely going to happen is that this thing is now going to go to trial, uh, you know, in some months down the road after there's been discovery, full documentary discovery. Um, in, in my particular case, uh, the Court of Appeal, the matter ended up in front of the Ontario Court of Appeal, and the Ontario Court of Appeal, a three-judge panel, unanimously dismissed Benabra's anti-slap motion And then uh, they sought leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. You can only appeal with the permission of the court uh, when you try to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. And they they sought that permission in the summer of last year, and we've just been waiting ever since. And basically, I can't do anything to advance my case until uh, we know whether the Supreme Court of Canada is going to hear an appeal for by Benegris. Mm. So you mentioned your own case. So before we get maybe in more into the legal details, can you explain to us what happened? So what prompted you to kind of file a lawsuit, a defamation lawsuit against Nebreth as well? Well, in, in 2016, I was the uh, the justice critic in the shadow cabinet of the Green Party of Canada. And uh, after I visited occupied Palestinian territory in uh, April and May of that year, I was so horrified by what I saw. When I came back, I, uh, I drafted a resolution calling for the Green Party to support uh, the use of BDS to bring an end to the occupation. And uh, very shortly after I brought that forward, I learned that the, the party leader, Elizabeth May, was opposed to BDS for reasons that I've never uh, really understood, frankly. Uh, and nonetheless, I decided to press forward with the resolution. And despite uh, her objections to it, the party's members adopted it. And uh, the vote for that resolution was held uh, at the biennial convention of the Green Party in August of 2016. And the day before the convention began, and the timing of this was quite intentional, I'm quite sure about that. The day before the convention began, Benabris issued a report Uh, claiming that I was a supporter of terrorism. So it was essentially the same allegation that was made against uh, uh, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. Mm -hmm. The reason they said that uh, they claimed that I was a supporter of terrorism is because when I had been in uh, the West Bank earlier in 2016, I had met with a Palestinian lawyer uh, by the name of Mohamed Alayan, 
a well-respected Palestinian lawyer from East Jerusalem. Uh, he was introduced to me by a, a, friend, a Palestinian Canadian friend of mine. And uh, I met with him and I had a conversation with him for two hours. And he told me in that conversation uh, that his son had recently been killed by Israeli security forces, uh, that they claimed that he had been killed in the course of a terrorist attack in a settlement in East Jerusalem. Uh, he said that he had uh, he didn't believe the accusations against his son. He saw no evidence to support the accusations. And the, the Israeli authorities refused to give his son's body back to him so that he could have the body forensically examined and then properly buried. Mm. Um, and he told me that he had been... Uh, he had agreed to represent a number of other Palestinian families who were in the same position. Children had been killed, and they were demanding the bodies of their children back, and they couldn't get them. And so uh, in the course of negotiating on their behalf and refusing to accept the very, very stringent conditions that Israel demanded they accept in order for the bodies to be returned, uh, the Israeli authorities demolished his home. And uh, he had nine other children. And they had all been rendered homeless, and his parents were living with him. So the entire family was now living in a tent beside the rubble of their house. Uh, and that's collective punishment. That's a war crime. It's a, a violation of international law. You know, Mohammed Alayan and his surviving children weren't accused of committing any terrorist act, let alone proven to have accused one. So there was absolutely no justification for the destruction of their home. Uh, and I spoke out against that. I condemned the destruction of their home and the fact that the family had been rendered homeless. And according to B'nai Bris, because I spoke out in defense of Muhammad Aliyan and his his children and his, uh, his spouse and his parents who were all now homeless, I was a supporter of terrorism. That was the accusation. So initially, I did not sue B'nai Bris. Uh, you know, I was really sort of preoccupied at the time with this fight over the BDS resolution. Uh, but they, they just kept saying it over and over again. They actually repeated that accusation seven times over the next seven months. They kept publishing documents in which they accused me of being a supporter of terrorism. And I realized after the seventh time that the mm -hmm. only way I could put a stop to, to it was to sue them. Mm. And so I did. And they immediately brought an anti-slap motion. So it was politically motivated. I mean, you became the target all of a sudden. Well, I think it's uh, it's quite clear what, what motivated it. They were trying to discredit me before the, the Green Party voted on the BDS resolution. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to you know, send a message to the Green Party members. You can't trust this man because he's a supporter of terrorism. Mm -hmm. That's why they that's why they published the article the day before the convention to cause maximum damage to my reputation and uh, for the purpose of defeating the BDS resolution. And again, like, you know, you want to argue against BDS, argue against BDS, you know, make your case. But don't go destroying people's reputations with lies in order to try to win the argument. There's nothing stopping, you know, B'nai B'rith and other organizations from having an honest debate about BDS. They don't have to destroy reputations to have that debate. Mm -hmm. And so this has to stop. You mentioned a third uh, defamation lawsuit that I wasn't aware of. So can you maybe talk to us about this one? So what is the details about this one? What, what prompted it as well? Uh, well, uh, about a year and a half ago, Uh, Canadian Friends of Sabil, uh, as I say, it's an organization which uh, advocates for Palestinian rights. It's based in Montreal, uh, organized a book tour by a Palestinian uh, priest by the name of Naim Atik. And Reverend Atik uh, is a proponent of uh, Palestinian liberation theology. And he wrote a book uh, called uh, uh, Palestinian Liberation Theology. And in that book, he quotes uh, passages from... A, an article by 
uh, a member of the American Jewish community named Alan Brownfeld. And in, and in Mr. Brownfeld's article, he says that there are some passages in the Talmud uh, which are quite extremist and, and uh, arguably racist. And so Reverend Atik quoted Mr. Brownfeld in his book, and during the book tour, uh, he referred to these excerpts from his book. And uh, B'nai B'rith sent uh, one of its employees to uh, one of the, uh, the speeches of the, one of the stops during the book tour, which was in Winnipeg, to take pictures of, you know, Reverend Atik's PowerPoint presentation and take notes of what he was saying. And based upon these excerpts, uh, which Reverend Atik b- borrowed from the work of Alan Brownfeld, mm-hmm. uh, they accused Reverend Atik of being anti-Semitic, and they accused my client of promoting a, an anti-Semitic book tour. That's what they called it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we take the position uh, that there's nothing anti-Semitic in the book, uh, that there was uh, nothing anti-Semitic about the book tour. And, uh, you know, as I say, ultimately, this is a matter that's before the courts, and the courts are going to have to decide, you know, whether there was any basis to what was said. So legally, we say there wasn't. So legally, where is it now? Is it, um, is it the same as yours and the union? Is the defamation lawsuit is going ahead? Uh, well, yes, that that particular claim is uh, in small claims court in Ontario. It's not in the uh, Superior Court of Justice. And so the, the procedure there is quite different from the Superior Court of Justice. And basically, uh, we are uh, heading towards a trial in that case. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that trial is very likely going to happen in the next six months. So, uh, Bnebreth smearing people, like you explained very well, it's very common, it's almost expected. I remember also we covered it during the election when they targeted um, the NDP candidate in Montreal, Miranda Gallo, and uh, we did an interview about that if people are interested. Um, so, it is very common for Bnebreth, but it's important maybe to put that in a larger context. There's this larger effort which seems to be, to me, maybe increasing this use of smearing campaigns to silence everyone who wants to speak about Palestine, who wants to criticize the Israeli government. Um, this kind of weaponiza- weaponization of anti-Semitism for political goals. Um, we saw it in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, now even Bernie Sanders in the US has been accused of anti-Semitism. Um, I'm going to read a couple of quotes and then maybe I got back to you and tell me what you think about that. So the Jerusalem Post, just as an example of these type of smearing campaigns against um, Bernie Sanders, the Jerusalem Post quoted the editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, Jonathan Stobin. He was uh, saying that if Sanders win, it would be, quote, an unprecedented nightmare for both American Jews and Israel alike. And he goes on to say that Sanders is the democratic contender who is the most critical of Israeli policy and the most sympathetic to the Palestinians. And this is why he is accusing Bernie Sanders of being anti-Samat. Mondo Weiss also wrote about this new campaign, and I'm going to quote, In recent days, a group calling itself Democrats Against Anti-Semitism has begun an earnest campaign to inject the discourse with the idea that Bernie Sanders, historically the leading Jewish politician ever to run for president, is an anti-Semite because of his positions on Israel. That group joins New York Times opinion editor Barry Weiss and others in seizing on the urgent task of vilifying Sanders. They evidently aim to, quote, Corbynize him by parroting smears used effectively against the UK Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. So 
if we put what happens, you know, to you, to the union, to the other group, and all these smearing campaigns by Babe Nebreth, if we put them in the larger context of these um, these smearing campaigns um, in general, internationally, they're happening. It's a tool that apartheid apologists are keep using. Do you think that they are effective? I guess that's the question. Is Do they really work? Are they just an annoyance? Do they maybe work more with politicians than activists? Are they really succeeding mm-hmm. in deterring people from talking about Palestine? So what, where are we? If we want to assess these tactics, where are we now? Well, I think, you know, yes, they, they, these <laughs> types of campaigns have worked. Uh, I think there are a lot of reasons why Jeremy, and Jeremy Corbyn didn't just lose. He lost very badly. I think there are, there are a number of reasons why that happened. Uh, one of them, a big one, was Brexit. And, you know, his, that was a, a, an issue that was very, very difficult for his party. I think he didn't handle that difficult issue particularly well. But there was no easy way to deal with it, and that cost him a lot of votes. Um, but, uh, you know, what we saw in Britain and what we're seeing in the United States now uh, is really it's, it's not – a simple campaign of the pro-Israel lobby against the candidate who is critical of Israel and who stands up for Palestinian human rights. What you're seeing is that right-wing uh, elements within British society and now within American society who really don't care at all or particularly about Israel, but who really want to see a socialist candidate defeated, are joining forces with pro-Israel groups to absolutely vilify any candidate uh, who is standing up for Palestine. And, you know, this is what happened in, in England. You know, there was a very the, the pro-business right-wing press, you know, many of whose members aren't particularly engaged in the struggle in Israel and Palestine, but who were absolutely horrified by the idea that a progressive person like Jeremy Corbyn could actually become the prime minister of Britain. They ganged up on Jeremy Corbyn and, uh, to a significant degree, they succeeded. I say that's not the only reason he lost, but they absolutely smeared the man over and over and over again. And this is a person who is a lifetime anti-racist. I mean, he was the last person in British politics who should be accused of anti-Semitism. It was preposterous. You know, and now we're seeing, the, I think, that the, the lobby in, uh, in the United States was emboldened. It's been emboldened by what happened in Britain. They think that this strategy can work again, but there's a little problem that they have. And the problem that they have is that Bernie Sanders is Jewish. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't. Mm-hmm. And Bernie Sanders, it, it is very, very dangerous for them to be trying to extend this strategy to uh, the person, the first Jewish person in the history of the United States who has a, a, a great shot, a wonderful shot at becoming president of the United States. He is, you know, all indications are he's leading the pack in the Democratic field, despite all the negative publicity about him in the right-wing press. He has consistently been shown in polls uh, to be the Democratic nominee who, is, who, who has the widest margin over Trump in the head-to-head competition with Trump. You know, the left in the United States and the center desperately want to see Trump defeated in the next election. And here you have this, in, this extraordinary politician, this Jewish politician in a position to become president, and they're trying to employ the pro-Israel groups and the right wing in the United States exactly the same strategy they employed against Corbyn. I think there's a real they're, they're, I think they're so, you know, they're so uh, blinded by their ideology that they don't see the danger in doing this. And it is going to, I think, spectacularly backfire on them. Calling Bernie Sanders an anti-Semite, it was it was, uh, you know, preposterous enough in the case of Jeremy Corbyn. 
But calling Bernie Sanders an anti-Semite is absolutely ludicrous. And there are a lot of people in the United States who are going to see right through that. And now, you know, this could be the turning point in this whole strategy of conflating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. This may very well prove to be the bridge too far when finally that that nefarious, uh, you know, disgusting strategy is defeated. And people begin to really understand what is going on when uh, anti-racist human rights activists defending Palestinians are constantly being accused of being supporters of terrorism and uh, and uh, and anti-semites so i i personally have a tremendous amount of respect for bernie sanders i would love to see him become the president of the united states i can i'll do everything i can as a canadian citizen to support him and i think we all of us every single progressive in the west need to stand behind bernie sanders against these scurrilous accusations mm-hmm. There is another an article, just to continue what you say, and it's, it parallels uh, a lot of what you say, and Jonathan Cook um, also wrote about this, an article called Anti-Semitism has been used to smear the left while the right targets choose. On the, and the article was published in the Middle East Eye. And Jonathan is talking, and I'm quoting, there is uh, a reckless miscalculation. The mock battle of fighting a supposed left-wing anti-Semitism has already diverted attention and energy away from the struggle against an all-too-real revival of right-wing anti-Semitism. Israel might emerge stronger by playing politics with anti-Semitism, but Western Jews may as well, may as a result, find themselves more exposed to hatred than at any time since the end of the Second World War. So um, that's what Jonathan uh, Cook was saying about this. And this is sort of the other backfire or the other danger that in the current climate of this rise of white supremacy, you know, white supremacy being in bold, they're kind of appropriating uh, anti-Semitism for their own um, benefit. And uh, there's this weird alliance between Zionist and right-wing groups, but it will backfire. I mean... It will, like Jonathan yes. said, it would backfire on the Jewish community that these groups claim that they care about. Look, I, I think the Jewish community in the West has a lot of reason to be concerned right now. <laughs> there is uh, an increase in right-wing violent anti-Semitism. We can see it. There's, people have died as a result of it within the last couple of years. Many innocent people of the Jewish community have died because of this virulent hatred on the right for the Jewish people. And this is absolutely scandalous that people, uh, you know, whether they be self-professed Christians, whether they be secular, whether they be members of the Jewish community who are fanatically devoted to Israel, are distracting attention from the real enemy Mm -hmm. of the Jewish people, namely right-wing white anti-Semitic supremacists and uh, and focusing on people on the left who are, in every sense of the word, opposed to racism in all its forms. This is a great danger to the Jewish community, and it absolutely has to stop. And the people who are distracting attention from the real danger need to be called out and exposed. Mm-hmm. And I commend Jonathan Cook for doing that. Uh, he's, he's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So you talked about uh, a bit of optimism when you were talking that this, uh, especially the campaign against uh, Bernie Sanders, might bike, might backfire on them. But there's also on the other side, there's now this uh, IHRA definition, which I'm sure you uh, know about, that also is trying to... Um, that that is uh, equating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, and now a lot of the Zionist and pro-apartheid groups are using that definition. They're trying to make cities adopted and country adopted. I think the U.S. they adopted it to use this as a legal weapon 
to silence even more Palestine solidarity activists and so on. So do you think, wh what is your opinion about that? Like that's a tool that's gonna be used by, um, by pro-apartheid group in their smearing campaigns. Do you think that tool will be effective? Well, it already has been effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, absolutely. It's been used, uh, deployed re uh, repeatedly, and it was deployed, uh, the IHRA definition was deployed to, uh, you know, smear Ilan Omar, uh, this wonderful uh, black Muslim congresswoman who is a fearless defender of Palestinian human rights. You know, they used the IHRA de definition against her, and she, she actually, and this is a, a mistake I think she made, she, she apologized for things she said, which were not in any way, shape or form anti-Semitic because she came under intense pressure from the establishment of her party, which is, you know, fanatically pro-Israel almost as much as the Republicans. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's already being used against uh, people, very high profile people. And, you know, whenever whenever the Israel lobby invests a lot of energy and time into something, you should be concerned about what they are trying to accomplish. And there has been tremendous effort put into the adoption of the IHR definition by groups like the Neighbor of Canada and the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. They're constantly talking about it, and they're, they're going around the country. They're going to city halls. They're going to provincial legislatures. They're going to parliament. They're going to academic institutions, and they're pressuring the leadership of these organizations institutions to adopt the IHR definition. Why are they so focused on that definition? not because they're worried that people on the left are going to commit acts of anti-Semitism, but because they're trying to silence critics of Israel. And there have been successful put, there's been successful pushback against this initiative from members of the Jewish community. And the most recent example of that was uh, in Montreal City Hall. I live in Montreal, and I was at City Hall uh, 10 days ago with a number of Montreal-based members of Independent Jewish Voices. And, uh, you know, a right-leaning member of Mon Montreal City Council uh, tried very hard to get the city council to adopt the IHR definition. And one member of independent Jewish voices stood up in the chamber and argued against that definition precisely because it is being weaponized to silence critics of, 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 uh, of uh, Israel's human rights abuses. And one of them made the very argument that Jonathan Cook made. One of them talked about white supremacist groups here in Canada who pose a real and present danger to the Jewish community and, and said that this this initiative, this relentless initiative to get us to adopt this definition, which is a danger to free speech, is distracting attention away from those who are really a threat to the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. uh, and ultimately, they were successful. Montreal City Council did not adopt the definition. Uh, so I, I, I see events like that. And it's not the first time that a city council in Canada uh, didn't adopt the definition. It also happened in Vancouver after uh, members of IJV and others opposed its adoption. So I, I see things like that as a, a, an indication that there's a turning point. The public is getting fed up mm -hmm. with the notion that every time you defend Palestinian human rights and demand that Israel be held accountable, you have to be subjected to fake accusations of anti-Semitism or support for terrorism. Mm -hmm. If people want to know what happened at the Montreal City Council, we did an interview last week with Fabienne Présenté from Independent Jewish Voices Canada from the Montreal branch about all the details that happened at the Montreal City Council about this IHRA definition. Um, I want to move on to another uh, story that happened in Canada that also relates to the topic we're discussing, these smearing campaigns against activists in Canada. And uh, it's uh, surrounding what happened at York University we also covered that uh, what happened there um, 
uh, was back in November. We covered it. Uh, also, we have an interview about it if people are interested. So just briefly, if people remember, uh, activists, student activists at York University were uh, physically assaulted, um, verbally assaulted. Some were even uh, were threatened uh, with sexual assault on York University during a protest that, were or that was organized by... Um, a student against Israeli apartheid group, which is a student group in New York University. And they were assaulted and, according to the protesters, all under the watchful eyes of York University security who did nothing. And uh, and so how this now, how this relates to what we're talking about, because the aftermath was shocking, to say the least. So when this mm -hmm. event became public, instead of having mainstream media, uh, cover it reasonably and the politicians sort of siding with the victims they flipped the complete scenario and they started this smearing campaign against protesters the victims accusing them of all type of heinous anti-semitic acts with no evidence whatsoever even the jerusalem post which fueled this campaign with uh, making horrendous accusation they had later they had to uh, be f they were forced later to take back their horrible inflammatory accusation against Palestinian student and Palestine solidarity student activists during this protest because they admitted that they actually had no evidence of their accusation despite having a lot of videos of the event so uh since then this there's there's few updates and you are involved uh, you became eventually involved with what happened in some way and there have been a few updates about this so I want to kind of discuss it a little bit because it relates to our topic as well um so first i guess before i before i ask you about the latest updates can you maybe also remind our listeners so the whole protest started because students were protesting against a specific event that was organized by a zionist group on campus so can you maybe remind our listeners what was this event why was it problematic mm -hmm. Well, it was organized by uh, a, a, a tiny fringe extreme right-wing group called Herut Canada, which appears to be led by a York University student by the name of Lauren Isaacs. Uh, she, you know, she gained uh, notoriety uh, the for the first time uh, a couple of years ago when she went up to the uh, the Dome of the Rock in East Jerusalem and unfurled a flag of the Israeli political party, Herut. Herut is a racist party. Uh, it is so racist that in 1948, after it was uh, founded by uh, Menachem Begin, who would later become the prime minister of Israel, it was denounced in a letter to the New York Times by Albert Einstein uh, and uh, Hannah Arendt and other uh, uh, extremely well uh, well-regarded uh, Jewish intellectuals as a an organization that was akin in its methods and its goals to the Nazi party that's the way they described it that's how racist it is that's how right-wing it is and this group or this party in Israel now has a Canadian affiliate which as I said is led by appears to be led by Lauren Isaacs who's a York University student and she organized an event featuring uh, reservists from the Israeli military. Uh, and this group is called Reservists on Duty. And the event was held on York University campus, and it was very clear that the purpose of the event was to whitewash the heinous crimes of the Israeli military, which is, which is guilty of countless war crimes, you know, which have been amply documented by human rights organizations around the world for decades. So here we had a situation where this racist party uh, was organizing, uh, you know, uh, 
members or former members of the Israeli military to come and to promote the Israeli military, a criminal organization, on the York University campus. You can imagine that people there, particularly people of Palestinian origin, felt very threatened, very insulted by this. And so SAYA, the Students Against Israeli Apartheid, uh, organized a, a protest at the site of this event. And when they showed up, they were subjected to the most you know, uh, outrageous uh, verbal abuse. A number of them were physically assaulted. One of them uh, was knocked unconscious. There is video of this. There's video of one of their members being choked with a scarf. He was simply acting as, a, um, as a basically unarmed security to try to keep the people separate. He was acting in a perfectly peaceful manner. And you can see him. There's a video. I've, I've looked at over 50 videos of what happened that day. And all of the violence that I've seen in these videos was on the side of the people who were there in support of Herut and in support of the Israeli military. I didn't see any violence committed by anybody uh, from the uh, group that was organized by Students Against Israeli Apartheid. Despite that fact, immediately after the event, uh, and, and by the way, one thing I should other mention is that the Jewish Defense League was there. This is an organization that has been you know, re- recognized by the FBI as being a terrorist organization. For some reason, you know, they won't shut it down in Canada. It was there basically to act as enforcers. And a number of its members, some of whom uh, were masked, and let's keep in mind that the JDL Canada, uh, members of that organization have been charged recently with hate crimes in the United States. Uh, they, they were there and they appear to have been the ones, the principal ones who were engaging uh, in acts of violence and threats of violence on the on the side of the, the pro-Israel uh, group that was at the campus that day. So this is what happened. This is what the evidence supports. Uh, as soon as it ended, uh, you know, one of the one of the Israeli soldiers, who by the way was a member of a squad in the Israeli military that is essentially a death squad, uh, he told the Jerusalem Post that hundreds these were his words hundreds of students were chanting back to the ovens. Mm-hmm. Now, you can, you can hardly imagine a more horrific thing for people to be chanting uh, to Jewish persons. I mean, absolutely appalling that anyone would say such a thing. But here's the thing. Despite the fact that, so, that supposedly hundreds of people were chanting this, nobody could produce a single video, not a single video to back it up. And, you know, I, the videos that I've reviewed, as I said, I've reviewed over 50 of them. None of them not one per- shows one person chanting anything like that. Uh, and you can see people from the... The, uh, the reservists on duty in Herut and the JDL pulling out their iPhones and they're all filming what the Palestinian protesters are doing. So hundreds of people were chanting this. Of course, there would be video evidence of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's un- inconceivable that there wouldn't be a video evidence of it. But there's absolutely nothing. So when the, J- when the Jerusalem Post was confronted, they just, you know, without any, without an ounce of skepticism, repeated what this, uh, you know, uh, former soldier from an Israeli death squad told it. Uh, when it was confronted with the fact that there was absolutely no video evidence to back this up, you know, it, it, it didn't completely retract it. What it said was that rather than the hundreds, you know, the report is that few people did it. But there's no evidence, no objective, credible evidence that even one person on the Palestinian side did it, on the pro-Palestinian side. Mm-hmm. Absolutely none. Of course, as you mentioned, you know, people like Doug Ford, Mayor Tory, the mayor of Toronto, uh, Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, they all just immediately accepted the narrative of those who advocate on behalf of Israel and denounced the pro-Palestinian protesters who were the the victims of violence and threats of violence and other forms of verbal abuse. Uh, That's what happened. Uh, 
Uh, and so we are now uh, scheduled to meet, uh, you know, the, the, the university has taken a number of measures to uh, try to ascertain what happened and to ensure that this doesn't happen again. One of the things that it's done is it's hired a former Supreme Court of Canada justice uh, to conduct a review. And uh, I represent a number of members of uh, Students Against Israeli Apartheid at York. And we are going to meet with uh, that former Supreme Court of Canada justice next week in Toronto, and we're going to present evidence to him. And uh, we're going to lay out our case. And uh, I'm, I'm confident that once the evidence is reviewed, it will be absolutely crystal clear that the claims against Saya are uh, complete fab- fabrications, absolute fabrications. Okay. And that the real, the real culprits here are the JDL and Herut. Okay. I want to kind of dissect a little bit what happened, uh, but before you mentioned JDL, so people have an idea. Recently, I think in New York uh, Post, I think they uh, wrote an article about how the JDL leader, now the main base of the JDL is in Toronto, and their base in their branch in New York is not existent, I believe. But they were reporting that the JDL leader wanted to go to the U.S., in New York in particular, to revive the JDL there because, uh, according to him, he needs to confront black leaders in New York City for spreading anti-Semitism. So we, yes. were, <laughs> we were talking during the entire show how this rise of anti-Semitism and these anti-Semitic attacks are the result of white supremacy and these right-wing groups, and he wants to blame black people for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... <laughs> Look, in every community, uh, regrettably, you can find racism. And, you know, there, uh, within the black community, you can find uh, some anti-Semitism. It exists. Uh, but that, he, this, this character, his name, by the way, is Mayor Weinstein, the leader of the JDL Canada, who wants to go down to the United States. You know, he's not going after real anti-Semites. What he's doing is he's going after black progressive activists who stand in solidarity with the oppressed Palestinian people. And he actually had the audacity to call these people black Nazis. That's how he referred to them. This far right lunatic is calling progressive blacks who stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people, black Nazis. You know, fortunately, uh, based on the reports I've seen, uh, progressive members of the Jewish community so far have done a wonderful job of keeping uh, Mayor Weinstein from, accomplishing his goals and uh they've succeeded in uh shutting shutting down venues where he was going to go and speak and spew his venom uh and i i would be very surprised if in you know uh the jewish community in new york uh there's so many wonderful progressives in that community that that they're going to let him get away with you know establishing the presence of the jdl there again Mm -hmm. i I think i think he's going to fail i think he's failing and uh, I think uh, the days of the JDL are numbered, and sooner or later, law enforcement is going to realize that this this is a this is a truly dangerous organization, and uh, you know we shouldn't be allowing it uh, to do the things that it does. You know, and law enforcement needs to take steps to put a stop to this. Mm-hmm. So after the attacks and the smearing campaign, there was two first reactions that I read about. The one coming from the reaction from the university, the one coming from the Canadian Federation of Students. Right after what happened in the protest, this federation released a resolution which York University President Rhonda Lenton spoke against, and she wasn't happy about it. So can you talk to us about that resolution? So what was the resolution that was passed? How is, is it linked to these events in particular? And why the York president also spoke up against this resolution? Well, I don't know too much about the particulars of that resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I believe that it had to do, uh, you know, basically, as I, I did at one point read the resolution, and it struck me as being uh, nothing but a principled stance uh, against, uh, you know, the campus being used by uh, groups that are spewing hatred, that are uh, spewing disinformation about what Israel is doing to the Palestinian people, and and not and, and, and trying to put a stop to that not by violent means, but by peaceful means. That's all the resolution was about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Rhonda Lenton, you know, the people who run the universities in this country, by and large, are come from the establishment. Uh, and they think like members of the establishment. And they're put in these positions precisely because they think like members of the establishment. And the establishment in Canada tends to be pro-Israel, or at least certainly not uh, willing to speak up in defense of, uh, of the oppressed Palestinian people. So I think she, you know, I don't know I've never actually met Miss Lenton. I've, I've uh, had a number of, uh, I've, I've certainly made my views known to her through social media and otherwise. Uh, but I suspect that she simply is uh, responding to the intense pressure that comes from, uh, you know, influential and powerful pro-Israel organizations whenever they're confronted by principal activism on university campuses in this country. And I think she's just essentially uh, capitulating to that pressure. So we're talking about the York administrative. So what was reported, and correct me, you know, if uh, I've got the details wrong, but what I understood is that after the protest, the York University suspended both Saya and Herut. And then recently I read a statement on Saya's website. They're saying that they were reinstated again. And I'm assuming that applies to Herut as well. And uh, then they were saying now the next step is to wait for the review from the justice, Justice uh, Cornwell. To um, yeah. is that correct? What I'm saying? Yes, I, I went uh, to a mediation uh, organized by York University. I went there on behalf of Saya, and uh, at the end of that mediation, Saya's booking privileges were reinstated. Uh, regrettably, uh, the university also reinstated the booking privileges of Herut, which in my opinion it should not have done. Mm -hmm. uh, and not only that, but so far it's failed to take any action to prevent the JDL from coming back on campus and engaging in acts of violence and hatred and uh, threats of violence. Uh, so we are continuing to demand, and we will continue to demand, that Herut be uh, banned from campus and that uh, in, in particular the JDL be banned from campus. And that's a position uh, which we've consistently taken, and I'm going to repeat that to the Supreme Court Justice when I meet with him. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, the uh, university administration will come to its senses and protect the students on campus from uh, these hate groups. So according to Saya's statement, also they were saying that um, Justice Cornwell will be um, precluded from making findings of fault and allocating blame for the events of November 20th. And they continue to say, whether by design or otherwise, that limitation on his mandate favors Herut and the JDL and reservists on duty because the evidence, including numerous videos, clearly establishes that Herut, the JDL and reservists on duty are responsible for the violence occurring on November 20th. So can you explain a little bit that? How can he do a review if he can't assign blame? <laughs> Well, that's a very good question. Okay. <laughs> you know, I don't know how. Apparently, his mandate is not to. His mandate is to come up with recommendations for how you're going to avoid this in the future. But I don't understand. And I think you properly asked, how can you, you know, figure out what is an appropriate policy to uh, prevent this sort of confrontation happening again in the future, 
unless you figure out what happened back in November of last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, you, the, two, the two questions are inseparable. Uh, and I, I suspect, you know, as the press release stated, that uh, this is being done because, you know, York University's administration has figured out who the real culprits are, and they don't want to have to deal with the whole headache of, you know, pointing a finger at the real culprits, because that's going to cause a big uh, brouhaha. You know, the, uh, the, the pro-Israel advocacy groups are going to be up in arms if York University ends up doing the right thing and saying, yes, it was the JDL, it was Herut, you know, they are the ones who are responsible uh, for any acts of violence or threats of violence. But it's important to understand also that there's a second review going on uh, internally at York, being conducted by York staff, and apparently that is going to uh, look into the question of who is actually responsible. So on behalf of SIA, we're also dealing with that investigation, and we're going to be submitting evidence uh, to the people who are conducting that investigation. And as I say, we're hoping that when you know they look at this evidence, which is unequivocal, uh, they're going to take appropriate steps to protect students from uh, the activities of these hate groups on campus. Mm-hmm. So we will continue for definitely following this issue. I guess at the end, the last question I would ask you, um, So if we come back to Canada and activism in Canada and solidarity of Palestinians, when activists or groups are faced with these smearing campaigns, what can people do to support? What, what advice would you, uh, you give to people who are targeted by these uh, campaigns? You were the target at one point. So what advice do you give them? How people can support them? How can we fight back? I guess that's the question. Well, I think people need to know their rights. They need to understand, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very... Uh, encouraged uh, and frankly I'm a little bit uh, I'm surprised at how well things have gone in the courtroom thus far I wasn't uh, you know I've spent decades uh, uh, practicing law and I wasn't uh, I, I wasn't sure what these new initiatives on behalf of the Palestinian solidarity community to use litigation as a way of defending ourselves I didn't know how this was all going to play out and so far the signs are quite good Uh, and I, I commend the judges of this country for taking an honest and partial look at the evidence in these cases and making the right calls, as they did in you know, the B'nai B'rith case uh, in Cup W, as they did in my case, also as they did in another case uh, involving a member of Canada's Jewish community, David Kattenberg, who complained about product of Israel labels on uh, wines from Israel's illegal settlements. Uh, you know, when, when you get into the courtroom... So far, the trend has been in this country, you get into the courtroom and you present the unvarnished evidence to the, the judges, uh, you know, they're making the right call. So litigation is, uh, you know, in appropriate circumstances, an effective way of defending yourself. If you're a Palestinian solidarity activist and you've been defamed or other, you know, you've been threatened. Uh, but you need to know your rights. You need to consult a lawyer. And there's a new organization that's uh, coming, uh, that's being developed here in Canada called Just Peace Advocates which is designed to do just that. It's designed to give people access to free legal advice when uh, their rights have been infringed in the course of their advocating on behalf of uh, Palestinian human rights. Uh, so that's an organization that people should support. Again, it's just peace advocates. Uh, and if people understand what legal avenues are available to them, uh, you know, we can fight back against the smears and the reputational destruction and the intimidation that people uh, who advocate for Palestinians are constantly having to confront in this country. 
With me on the phone, human rights lawyer, activist, and journalist, Dimitri Laskaris. Thank you very much, to, uh, Dimitri, for talking to me today. Thank you, Sasson. Uh, always a pleasure. And that's it for us for today. You were listening to Under the Olive Tree, the Palestine Solidarity Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal and on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. If you missed uh, the interview, you didn't catch it from the beginning as usual. I will put uh, the link uh, of the interview on our Facebook page. Just look for Under the Olive Tree. It was an interview with lawyer Dimitri Laskaris, and we were talking about the smearing campaigns of pro-apartheid activists in Canada. And if they will ever uh, be held accountable, we specifically talked about uh, the specific case of one group that is facing today three different defamation lawsuits in Canada. So my name is Sausan Kadura. I was your host for this hour. Make sure to join me again next week, same time and same place. And until then, I wish you a free, free Palestine.